all of those experience of feeling like the other drove me to really double down on doing work that made me feel like I belonged. Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what the hell is going on right now. I'm Adrian Dobb. And I'm Laura Good. And The Feminist Present is brought to you by White Claw on a Tuesday. White Claw on a Tuesday, because why the fuck not? <laughs> the Feminist Present is brought to you by weed gummies four nights a week, because it's pandemic season, bitches. We're not doing so hot over here. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're just kind of white knuckling it. Um, did you uh, Did you read Susan Orlean's tweets this week? Because I sure did. Did I read them? I, I lived them. I lived them. <laughs> Those are the tweets of the week. The tweet of the week is drunk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I am. Whew. It's funny, given that we're starting to reach a new level of COVID shut in loopiness. And yet we may have our most academic mm -hmm. discussion yet. This is uh, COVID loopiness plus scholarly rigor. Welcome to the feminist present. Yep. <laughs> this is extremely our brand. Who is our rigorous scholar of this week, Adrian? It's Anthony Ocampo, who is an associate professor at Cal Poly Pomona and the author of the fantastic The Latinos of Asia, How Filipino Americans Break the Rules of Race, which I think is the book that really got you interested in his writing. Is that right? It is a book that made me obsessed with his writing. I picked up this book last fall in an effort to support the Stanford University Press, which has been through some drama in the last year. Shout out to, shout yeah, out shout out to SUP. And also to investigate why I have had a number of very close relationships with Filipinos in my life. I think I wanted a sociological answer to that question, and boy, did Anthony C. Ocampo deliver the goods. This book I have talked about with so many people. It's inspired so many conversations in my life. Yeah, I mean, and I have to say thank you for turning me on to it. I had been aware of it, but I hadn't read it cover to cover until you told me to. And it's a grand history, really, of Filipinx identity in the United States. But at the same time, it really sort of recontextualizes and really lives off of these tiny interactions, these tiny facts, these tiny questions about you know, who's friends with whom, about where people go to school, what professions people go into, about gender disparity, about gender presentation, about how people are read racially, right? That really make you rethink your own world in a really, really impressive way in which I think academic writing ought to, but all too rarely does, honestly. I can also say that I think I've bought three additional copies of this book for people in my friend group. So not only am I now obsessed with Anthony Ocampo, literally like everyone I know is too now. And we had a wonderful conversation with him that addressed some of the stuff Adrian was just mentioning about his book, The Latinos of Asia. We also talked a little bit more broadly about college experiences for students of color and especially Filipino American students. We talked about Anthony's Stanford memories and gossip, which are invaluable to us. And we talked about facilitating difficult conversations about anti-blackness in families, which Anthony has been an incredible role model and global teacher in doing. So without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Anthony Ocampo. Should we start with Stanford gossip? Yeah, let's do Stanford gossip. I have lots of things to share about Stanford. I <laughs> want to hear them all. Uh, when did you graduate and what did you study? I graduated in 2003. And I was just talking about this with my mom because I am... <laughs> like $500 away from finishing paying my college loans. Wow. <laughs> so that's a big deal. Yeah, I was kind of holding off to see who would end up being president. But then what I realized, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. So I was like, I'll just pay him off. But yeah, 17 years later, I am on the cusp of finishing paying for that education. So hooray. hooray. I majored in comparative studies in race and ethnicity. 
And then I stayed an extra year and did a master's in modern thought and literature. <laughs> MTL. 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 Yeah. Yeah. The MTL PhD students were like my role model heroes. I was just in awe of them. So What specifically were you in awe of? Like what made such a big impression on you? Oh my gosh. So I can give the long-winded answer or the short answer. I got time. Uh, the, yeah. You know, the long-winded answer was that, oh my gosh, when I got to Stanford, I, like a lot of students in general, and definitely with a lot of students of color, I witnessed Stanford is very intimidating. (laughs) I arrived on campus and my neighbor was best friends with Natalie Portman. I had another neighbor that when she said she was from New York as a joke, I said, oh, do you live on Park Avenue? And she's like, yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> and, and so it was uh, a lot of those moments where the imposter syndrome kicked in and why am I here, et cetera, et cetera. And so I remember how unconfident I was when I arrived at Stanford, even though like most people that went there, I defined myself by my academic abilities. First year at Stanford's pretty sobering. And so I would say that I had a lot of TAs that happened to be graduate students in MTL. And at the time, there were a lot of Black graduate students, Latinx, Chickenx graduate students. I could like name them. This was the time of like Raul Coronado. Who's now a professor at UC Berkeley. And Mishana Goman. Who's now at UCLA. And Ebony Cotello and Magdalena Barrera, Celine Perenia Shimizu. So people that are like renowned scholars in their fields now were just like kicking it at Stanford and being fabulous and dressing fabulous and intellectualizing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to be like them. And so, yeah, having them as TAs, they were probably among my first intellectual role models of color that I ever encountered there in undergrad. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about this because I want to bring it back to your book, The Latinos of Asia, How Filipino Americans Break the Rules of Race, which is the most page-turning sociology text I've ever read. I was like, I'm changing my major, guys. Oh, wow. Like, <laughs> I have a new field of inquiry, sociology. Not that it was the first sociology book I've ever read, but it, it felt lived in and accessible in a way that felt really inclusive. Like, I didn't feel alienated by your book the way I feel alienated by a lot of scholarly texts, both inclusive and beyond sociology. And I also noticed that your book devotes it two chapters, is it, to the college experience specifically? I wonder if you could draw a line between your experience at Stanford and your portal into that kind of research. Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I, I grew up in Eagle Rock, which is in Northeast Los Angeles. Kindergarten through eighth grade, I was surrounded by Filipino students. We were the majority. And then close second was Latinx students. And then in high school, I went to a predominantly, actually, I went to a pretty diverse high school in LA, it's private school, Catholic, all boys. And there was a good number of Filipino students there as well. But when I got to Stanford, oof, uh, I got there and I was like one of 20 something in the entire freshman class, which I learned wow. that year was the record breaking number of Filipino students to be admitted and matriculate Stanford. So in a class of how many? 1650 total? students. There was 27, which is actually about the number that I had in my second grade class. So it's like it was very weird. And, you know, in L.A., I grew up in an environment where race was just everyday conversation. It wasn't like a big deal to seamlessly incorporate race, racial humor, stories about racial experiences. Those were just par for the course in everyday conversation. And when I got to Stanford, I learned that that was not the case for everybody. (laughs) And so, you know, this was before we had terms like microaggressions or white fragility, but in the early 2000s, like 99, 2000, I remember how visceral people's reactions were whenever I would bring up race. And it wasn't like I was trying to do it in an overt fashion. It just sort of came out of my mouth. And so I distinctly remember several times when someone would be like, very publicly, why does it always have to be about race? And so I remember how 
silencing and just how much that hit me. Even though I was someone that had never been ashamed about being Filipino, I've never recalled a time when I've ever wanted to be white, for example, which I know is the case with people that grow up in other parts of the country. That was the first time where I started to really question whether my hardcore Filipino-ness was a problem. <laughs> and so I think about middle of the first year, I made a decision and I said, I am just not going to talk about anything racial, mm. even if it's like right smack in front of me, even if people ask my opinion, I'm just going to like self-censor myself and try to fit in. And that's what I did. I tried to fit in with my classmates in my dorm. And then toward the end of the year, maybe like the last week of my freshman year, we had one of those goodbye parties or end of the year banquets where they gave out these awards for every resident, you know, like most likely to whatever. They were meant to be funny. And the award that I got was most likely to write a dissertation on himself entitled The Ghetto in Me. Oh, <gasps> Jesus. And so, mind you, I was like in a room with 90 other first year students in front of the faculty fellow that lived in the dorm. The staff members, I learned that it was the staff members who actually gave out this award. So I was just mortified as you can imagine but also kind of emboldened let's just say that when those moments happen i maintain a very like fuck you fuck you fuck you attitude Thank uh, which ends up generating a lot of cool stuff i found but yeah that was like the moment when i was like wow i have really been fooling myself into thinking that if i didn't talk about this stuff it would somehow magically go away mm. and in fact it never does so when that happened it was actually around the time i started doubling down on doing research or ethnic studies work i was struggling that first year academically i just could not find my footing but I had a faculty advisor who happened to be black and queer who said, there's this new major on campus. It's called Comparative Studies and Race and Ethnicity. I think you'd really like it. And so I just started to take some classes in that first year. I took an African-American psychology class. I took an Asian-American literature class. I noticed real quick that there was a difference in the classes that were not ethnic studies and the ones that were in that and in my ethnic studies classes, I could talk about some of the aspects of my background, whether it's growing up in an immigrant household, being Filipino and not really feeling like I fit in one racial category or the other. And that was intellectual material that was valuable to bring into the class discussion in ways that I didn't really get the sense in other classes. All of those experience of feeling like the other drove me to really double down on doing work that made me feel like I belonged. I distinctly remember coming across this quote by Henry Louis Gates somewhere in some class that talked about how like academics or intellectuals are the ones who determine what counts as knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so that really stuck with me early on. And I just started to fill my schedule with classes where I felt like my experience contributed to knowledge. It was amazing. I loved it. And once I found my groove, it was pretty cool. I do want to add one thing about how I ended up writing a book on Filipinos that so closely ties to my own experience growing up in LA and being Filipino. In my spring term of my freshman year, I knew a history PhD student by the name of Don Mabalan, who sadly passed away two years ago. She was doing Filipino-American history, and she, she was a grad student that taught her own class. On the first day of class, she said, if you learn nothing else from me, make sure to go get your PhD. And I thought, like, what is a PhD? Uh, I didn't know anything about it. But in that class, she was irreverent. She was funny. She was just intellectually a force to be reckoned with. And it was also the first place where writing about Filipinos was actually the stuff we had to do for a class. And so I started writing essays on Filipino identity 
then. And every time I had the opportunity to write my own final paper on whatever topic I wanted, I'd ask the professor, can I write about Filipino racialization or Filipino colonialism in the Philippines or something? A lot of them said yes. And so that book is really the building blocks of essays I wrote as an undergrad 16 years before. Mm. Do you think that for our listeners, you could define what's meant by racialization? Because I do think it's such a key term. And if anyone wants to see how that actually works, your book is a perfect place to start. Yeah, racialization. You know, racialization, sometimes people think about race as just checking a box on a form, like when you're registering to vote, applying for a job, whatever. But racialization refers to the very multifaceted nature of how people come into their racial identity. So by racialization, a big part of it is the way other people see you racially. So for example, my partner, he is a very similar background to mine. His parents are both Filipino immigrants, came around the 70s and 80s, just like my parents. But phenotypically, he looks to a lot of people Mexican or Latinx. And so when he when he goes about his business, walking down the street, things will happen where people will start speaking to him in Spanish or, you know, several months later after knowing him, they'll be like, you're not Mexican. I thought this whole time you're Mexican. Uh, and so that's what racialization refers to. Hearing you describe your genesis as a scholar, it really strikes me how your experience at Stanford kind of shaped what you would write on. I hadn't put together that the way you write and the way you put together your research also strikes me as trying to address these problems that you identify, right? Because your book really asks the question about Filipino identity in two separate spheres, right? On the one hand, how racialization works sort of society-wide. And then the other question is like, well, how do people actually experience this? How does this actually end up in And everyday behavior, preferences, what are the big questions around U.S. imperialism, racialization in the United States in general, role of religion and racialization, but then also, okay, what does that mean for friend groups? What does that mean for who you hang out with? Mm -hmm. What does that mean for what your town ends up looking like? Is that fair to put it that way, that it became the methodology for this book? I love the way you put that because I was having moments where... In my life, I was like, man, I don't know what better way to put it, but colonialism is affecting this moment right now. Right. It sounds very weird to say, but I was finding moments in which, whether it was Spanish colonialism, the legacies that come from that, like my last name or particular sensibilities about phenotype or religion, it was affecting how I was falling into the larger racial landscape of Stanford. There were no Filipinos there, essentially. And so I was really noticing the ways in which folks were seeing me vis-a-vis Asian Americans at the campus and then Latinx students at the campus. And I noticed that there were, you know, if we think about race as also a feeling, there were a lot of moments in which there was a feeling of closeness with the Chicano students at Stanford in ways that I didn't experience with the Asian American students there. And so I thought there was something to it. And and then, of course, this was also the time when social media emerged. And I would see things like in the days of MySpace, <laughs> back in the day with MySpace, when you set up a profile, you can set up, you know, your name, you could pick your top eight friends and music. But one thing you could also do is you could pick your ethnicity is how they labeled it, I think. And I started to notice that a lot of Filipinos were not picking Asian for whatever reason. And that resonated with me because I remember when I was applying to college and I was given those categories of like Hispanic, Latino, Asian, black, white, my hand was like, I do not want to check the Asian box because something in me is telling me that just doesn't fit. And I didn't learn until talking to other people that that was more commonplace than I had realized. It wasn't just me. The thing is, how do you explain to a professor that you want to study disidentification? You know, there's a lot of classes where let's look at identity as a dependent variable or let's see how people identify. But I was in a situation where I was trying to center what Filipinos felt they weren't. And that just... I never realized that that could be a point of departure for a study. This book is what I wrote my grad apps about. 
Like when I applied to grad school, I wanted to study exactly what this book was about. And I remember when I tried to explain that to professors, hey, I want to study Filipino racialization vis-a-vis Latinx and Asian Americans. And Mm -hmm. you know when you get the blank stares from people where they're just like, Mm -hmm. and so you just assume that your idea is not good. And so I actually spent so many years just like not doing this as my dissertation research and I actually spent four and a half years of grad school doing other things then finally came back to this because I was like fuck it if I can't do this project then I don't want to finish the PhD so and as you point out in the book it's a particularly counterintuitive move in some way given that Filipino Americans were really pioneers in establishing the category of Asian American as a political kind of mobilizing tool to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so you are sort of pointing out sort of the unconscious of that move to some extent in the book. Yeah, I think about one of my professors in undergrad, Rudy Busto, he and I were chatting about it once. And it was this thing of like, well, Filipinos have been Asian American since the 1960s. But Filipinos have had links with Latinos since 1500s right and that's not something that you can just override with a political alliance that emerges even if it is institutionalized it emerges within the last 50 years right so there's something to it to that point of like various colonial influences if as you say filipinos have only been categorized in the u.s as asian americans since the 60s you're saying a relationship of over 400 years with spain precedes that but also a relationship of over 100 years with the u.s precedes that too you know like i felt like I learned so much about the valences of the relationship between the Philippines and the U.S. through your book. Oh, cool. It's hard because, you know, I got to have my obligatory historical context chapter. And I'm like, man, there's so much to cover. So much but to cover. I'm glad that <laughs> I remember when I wrote that chapter, I was like, I'm a sociologist. I'm not a historian. I want to make sure I do not do anything boneheaded. So I got to call Rudy Guevara, who's a historian at ASU, and Rick Baldos, who's a historical sociologist at Oberlin. And I was like, hey, friends, can you just check this chapter to make sure I don't I don't fuck it up? Right. <laughs> Number one, because I'm like, man, there's not a lot of Filipino scholars. So to like be full of errors would not be good for the cause. But also, you know, it just sort of speaks to how the one advantage of feeling like you're the only or one of the few in academia is that Filipino sibs are everywhere and they're willing to bend over backwards to help you. So your book has inspired so many conversations in like my friend groups. And one of the interesting findings that came out of those conversations was I was chatting with my neighbor who I believe is 67 Mm -hmm. and a Filipino immigrant who came here in the 80s, the 70s or the 80s. And we were talking about the sort of colonial lineages that you describe and all of that. And she told me that three of her four grandparents were 100% Spanish and one of her grandmothers was Chinese. And so like her lineage is fully 75% Spanish. That blew me away, right? That I mean, I realized that's probably more typical of her generation than of ours in Uh terms of like the timeline of that legacy. But that was a fascinating fact to me. The Spanish thing is always a funny thing because like, I feel like I remember some days when Filipinos tried to front and be like, oh, part Spanish, right? And it was sort of a way to distance oneself from Filipino-ness, which was really... She talked about that too, yeah. Fascinating, right? And I think that speaks to the ways in which colonialism assigns value to Filipino-ness, Western-ness, etc., But it is the case that there are a lot of folks who come from a particular region or class where it is totally the case that their grandparents and generation are Spanish, like straight up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When we talk about racialization, you mention it primarily right now as a kind of something being imputed to you that isn't actually reflective of your background. And it's one of the themes that runs through your book, right, that due to American colonialism, A lot of Filipino Americans grow up really not speaking anything other than English, their parents being essentially English speaking to begin with, then the kind of double colonial legacy and the Catholicism coding things in a more Latinx direction. I think that's incredibly rich and incredibly fascinating in your book. It also suggests to me, like, on the one hand, the kind of worry about visibility and invisibility is, of course, a big theme in the book. But it seems like 
the people you interview, they seem to have a very interesting relationship to that relative lack of visibility. And I think that's something I'd like to hear a little bit more about. Now, of course, you went to places where there's really an extremely robust Filipino-American community. It might be different if you went to like Idaho or whatever, but like, but still, it sounded like people were kind of navigating and playing with this invisibility more so than I must admit I would have expected. What's interesting is as I was doing this project, I read a lot of research on multiracial individuals, mixed race identity, and often the narrative is like, oh, you don't feel like you're fully one thing or the other. In other words, most of the experiences that I, I tend to read about are been negative experiences. So right. it was really enlightening to see how much Filipinos embrace their racial for lack of a better way of putting it, chameleonism, which is what color they were just dependent on the social context surrounding them. And so I found that a lot of the Filipino interviewees that I spoke with took pride in the fact that, oh, Filipinos can fit in everywhere. Sometimes they would refer to the fact that Filipinos are in over 200 countries all over the world, from Spain to the Middle East to different parts of Asia. And even though I think that they were a little misinformed and oversimplifying, it was this idea that like, oh, we can go anywhere and make life work. Well, there's that adorable moment when you ask people to guess what percentage of Eagle Rock is Filipino. And they all come up with like numbers in excess of 90%. Oh, yeah. That was funny because sometimes we'd literally be outside in a coffee shop and I'd be looking at all the passersby and it was clearly not. 90% right? <laughs> Filipino residents. I think there's two things that play there, right? I think the fact that Filipinos grew up in a, as you mentioned, a robust Filipino community meant that they grew up in an environment where they had easy access to Filipino culture, to Filipino relatives. You know, there's constantly people going back and forth from LA to the Philippines. And so even if they themselves have never been to the Philippines, growing up in Igorok and Carson somehow became their Filipino street cred. Right. And made them legitimate, which I think makes it a lot easier to then embrace the malleability of Filipino identity. I do think that there are a lot of Filipinos I met that are from other parts of the country where the inability of other people to place them actually leads to more distress. Mm. That's in part because, you know, they may have not grown up in a household or a neighborhood where their Filipino-ness was front and center. Given that this is a feminist podcast, I did want to ask very briefly, the racialization of Asian Americans has obviously, like as a category, often intersected with constructions of gender, right? Mm -hmm. Asian Americanness and femininity are sort of strongly linked in American pop culture, right? Yeah. Dragon ladies of early Hollywood or, you know, effeminate kind of caricatures of nerdy Asian men. And Latinx people, of course, are racially gendered very differently in the U.S. Uh -huh. And so when it came to your interview subjects, how did they navigate this part of it? You don't talk about it that much in the book, but how did they locate their own experiences around gender and sexuality? That's a really good question. So the people that I interviewed came of age, mostly the 90s, some in the 80s. And there are a lot of gender dynamics that intersect with Filipino identity. Just to give you an example, you know, even in places like Carson or wherever Filipinos were, among Filipino boys, there was a prescribed aesthetic that pretty much aligned with hip hop culture. Right. And that, you know, the definition of being a Filipino guy was very narrow. I, we didn't have a lot of models, but in junior high, you were either like dressing like a cholo, which is slang for a Latino that's gang affiliated or whatever. Funny thing is a lot of the gangs in LA had both Filipinos and Mexican Americans sometimes, but it was either gangster culture or it was hip hop culture. You would demonstrate your masculinity by showing that you could break dance, showing that you can DJ, showing that you could play basketball. But it was a type of racialized masculinity that was predicated on that type of cultural production as opposed to like the denigration of and subordination of women. Mm. And so that was one gender dynamic that I wish I could tease out. And not to dismiss that, I don't want to impose the idea that gender dynamics or inequality doesn't exist between Filipino young men and women. But in our community, it is much more often the case that Filipino women, Filipino immigrant women 
occupy the dominant role in families. And I'm not going to go so far as to say like Filipino culture is matriarchal or anything. But if you think about the ways in which the migration streams were gendered, Filipinos are the only migration stream where there was more women coming than men and primarily because of industries like nursing. So economically, the pattern suggests it is more common in the Filipino group for women to at least be economically on par with male partners Mm. than it is in other cases. And I do think that really shaped the ways in which a lot of the women that I interviewed carried themselves while of course there were those things about like oh my brother gets to stay out a little bit later than me i didn't get the sense that there was major patriarchal authoritarianism in the same way i've observed with other groups again which is not to say it doesn't happen because that would be simplistic but i met a lot of interviewees where they said mom runs the house and so I thought that that was worth saying. That feels super embroiled with Catholicism too, the sort of centrality of the maternal figure and everything kind of orbiting around her, but also like some shitty things happening to and for her. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. That feels very inscribed by Catholicism to me. I swear to God, you should do a content analysis of like religious items in Filipino households. Dude. I would put money that there are way more Virgin Marys and Our Lady of Fatima and Our Lady of Guadalupe statues than Jesus. I swear. I also noticed from your online presence that you are like not so secretly a huge nerd for people like Tressie McMillan Cottom and Gia Tolentino and people who do this kind of genre blurring between Uh more scholarly and more essayistic modes of writing. I'm kind of out on a limb in saying this, but I think there's some gender dynamics in there that I'm interested in too, because I think that as we're talking about what's traditionally been coded as masculine and feminine, like I think Uh of scholarship as something that's been more historically and traditionally coded as masculine and the personal essay as something that's been more coded as feminine, especially in our modern kind of like the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. I'm obviously biased on this because like I write on and study the feminist first person essay since 2000. But tell me about your genre anxiety. I want to hear all about it. Genre anxiety. Okay. When did I, I'm trying to think about the sequence of my Defection. Is that the right word? Defecting from like academies. Ooh, Um, we'll take it. (laughs) So I always wanted to write for the Filipino kid that never gets to read about themselves. That's Mm. always been central. Obviously, like Mm -hmm. in academia, you don't share that because people will think you're not serious or whatever. But when I was writing my book, I was at a fork in the road about how to write it. Because obviously, like if you pick up my dissertation, you'll see that I'm fully capable of writing the version of my book that's like theories of immigrant integration Mm -hmm. suggest that blah, 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 blah. Right. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I do it sometimes with articles. But for me, when I thought about like, what was the entire point of going into this career in the first place? It was because I wanted to write books that like my cousin can read or my niece can read. And so this is such a complicated issue because when I graduated from UCLA, I was indoctrinated with the belief that like, if you don't go to an R1 job, you're a failure. <laughs> Maybe we should clarify for our listeners that R1 means research one. So PhD granting universities with the biggest focus on research, basically. And so I was at a fork in the road and I was choosing between mm. a postdoc at the UC and like a job at the Cal State where research is not as heavily weighed. I ended up going to the Cal State job at Cal Poly Pomona. And that decision completely altered the way I write. Number one, I wasn't surrounded by like key immigration scholars that were writing for like AJS and ASR. And instead, I was surrounded by just people that were doing their work in a variety of fronts. Sometimes people are doing it through journals, of course. Sometimes they're doing it through community work. And then also, I was also teaching a lot more. And my students were people who had much, much more difficult college experiences than me. They had full-time jobs or part-time jobs, at least. They were raising families. They were taking care of their elderly parents. And I knew that they were mad busy, hella dedicated, but mad busy. And so when I started to teach I really noticed that there were certain books that I would assign where I thought they were dope, but the students were just kind of like, 
man. <laughs> I won't name them, but I mean, I still think they're dope books. But the students were like, this is kind of, you know, hard to read given my time constraints. And then there were other books, which I will name, like Victor Rios wrote a book called Punished and CJ Pasco wrote a book called Deidre Fag. They just like loved it. And when I really started to look at the difference between the writing style of those books, I was like, okay, they can still tackle the rigorous theoretical stuff, but if it's written in a particular way, nothing is lost. Yes. And I want to do the latter. So that was just a personal decision. Again, I enjoy jargon. Like I'll be the first to admit, like when I'm with my homies and we're riffing on stuff, it's nice to have those shorthands. But with the audience that I'm very clearly have in mind, which is Filipino communities, I wanted to write in a way that was also accessible. And here's the other thing I learned. One thing I learned in grad school is that nobody cared about Filipinos. I couldn't get people to care about Filipinos but I could get people to care about me. Mm. And by virtue of caring about me, maybe I would be the vessel through which they would care about Filipinos. I saw it time and time again, people that would not for the life of them even think or talk or read about Filipinos by virtue of their relationship to me, were all of a sudden interested in it, which, you know, for better or for worse, that's a pattern that emerged that I saw. And so when I started writing, I thought, okay, what can I do to write in a way that gets people to get attached to me as much as they do to the topic? Mm. And I don't think I was doing it consciously, but now I do it super consciously. And this was, of course, before I discovered personal essay was a thing. One thing that I think a lot of people who have not written an academic book will not know is that it's so much harder to write a book the way you wrote the Latinos so of Asia yeah. than it is to just load that fucker up with jargon and just like oh, send it off. You. And I'm just wondering like <laughs> if there are any grad students listening or PhD students listening, how long did it take you to refine a way the kinds of things that you and your colleagues can read, but anyone who doesn't have the time commitment or the necessary toolkit really can't really quite get into it. How long did it take? Was it one hard self-read and self-analysis or are we looking at the result of iterative years-long process yeah <laughs> it was a lot of like what the fuck am i doing to be <laughs> honest and so i wrote my dissertation and then i had an opportunity with some press to submit there and then i rewrote the book in what i thought was accessible language and then when someone read it, they're like, this is still like dissertation-y, which is normal for a lot of people. Yeah. And then when I got the reviews for that first press that I was considering, the reviews I got were very much like encouraging me to incorporate a lot of jargon. They were trying to encourage me to write a very academic book. And that's, again, that's totally Fine, within yeah. their right and their purview. But in my gut, I was like, there's something off here. And so mm. I worked with Stanford University Press and I, I credit them a lot because I told them. Shout out. Yeah, shout out. <laughs> they gave me a lot of freedom. I told them I like the idea of writing a book that people can read on a bus or on an airplane while <laughs> using the bathroom. Like I literally was like, how do I write in a way where like you would just pick it up in your free time and want to just turn the page? So I had an editor at Stanford, Jenny Gavash, who's not there anymore, but she encouraged me to think about writing as your burden as a writer is to get people to read the next sentence, mm. to read to the next page, and then to read to the next chapter. And so that really stuck with me a lot. And so I kind of think about my writing like that now. That's such a great piece of advice because I mm -hmm. feel like I read a lot of very good, frankly, very good academic writing where it's the opposite. They seem kind of shocked that you're still here, uh -huh. right? And you're like, why, well, why did you write it if you didn't like think I was going to stick this out? And there's something so nice about a writer who feels a kind of duty to say, we're getting somewhere here. Mm -hmm. You're going to be happy that you read this. I will say this about being where I'm at institutionally. I didn't have any fear that the way I wrote it would have professional repercussions. I did think like, if I write it this way, will it compromise my ability to like get a new job or whatever? And I did have a few scholars that have like told me to my face, like the book is too personal or it reads too personal, which used to really get to me. And now a couple NPR interviews later, it doesn't at all. So right. um, <laughs> it's like, it's scary. I think for people that are fresh out of grad school to embark on a different style of writing. But I do think that it's happening more and more. Tressie is obviously like 
the model of like you can write about our noble region yeah like talk about the patron saint of writing accessible sociological work yeah. reading these other books that talked about the same topics but like Roxanne Gay you know I read Bad Feminist and I was like wow you could be funny and say the f word and still get your point across right? I was like all of those works, each of them has given me permission to experiment. And I'm really glad that I'm at an institution where experimenting with your prose is not penalizing mm. you in mm-hmm. any way. Yeah. So I do think that there is something to be said about the structural constraints one occupies affects one's willingness to embark on this style of writing. Mm. I mean, then again, you have cases like e-viewing who like gorgeous writer, gorgeous tweeter, you know, just what she does with sentences is amazing. Poet for the ages. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I like Matt Desmond's book is amazing. Like it's a really good book, um, Evicted. And so there are, I think, more and more people who are writing in ways that I think are accessible for a wider audience. You know, we haven't really talked about the present historical moment that much yet, but I mean, like you look at the Amazon bestsellers and whatever, Oh my gosh! you can tell that like people are hungry for this knowledge and presenting it in a way that they can absorb it and they can make it part of their lives yeah. is kind of an ethical imperative really. Right. I mean, like not every topic can be presented this way and that's true at the same time, yeah. if it is the kind of book that someone might conceivably reach for as they try to make sense of something that happened to them, you want to make sure that they are at home in your book, right? Yeah, absolutely. One of the unexpected things about my book that I never anticipated is that it gave people, Filipino, Filipinex, non-Filipinex alike, a language to understand Filipinos and sort of talk about immigration, talk about colonialism, talk about the flexibility of identity in ways that they just didn't have the language for. And that's super cool. Yeah, that New York Times bestseller list is wild. I'm like, it makes me think of all the times when I was in undergrad and my parents were like, you're majoring in what? What's Mm -hmm. ethnic studies? For them to see the public Mm -hmm. acknowledge how important it is for us to be well-versed in issues of race or immigration or queerness. It's just, it's bananas to be in this moment. That New York, was it like six out of 10 of the top 10 were race studies books? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah. Really kind of amazing. Right. And I mean, at the same time, if you think about where these disciplines are all located within the academy, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's like 60% of the New York Times bestseller list. It kind of tells you something about where the university perceives demand and where it really exists. Yeah. Which makes me wonder, like, why isn't there a grad program that's like, we're going to teach you how to write a trade book. We're going to spend these six years so that you can get a book out with the new press or Beacon or Haymarket. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, I think... Can I ask your opinion as people that are at Stanford? I think I kind of work in that program now. (laughs) You, you too. You're, you're. Yeah, yeah. I hope to see a broader movement in that direction across the academy. Uh I am one person within a large university and the program that I run still feels incredibly new and experimental and like very much sort of sorting its own test cases. Yeah. But yeah, I find a real, I would call it a moral urgency Mm -hmm. in training students to advocate for themselves, to make a living and to have options, you know, and I think it's irresponsible to send especially humanities students out into such a bleak academic job market with no other skills, training or contacts. So that's something I feel very strongly about. I mean, it resonates, Laura. Mm -hmm, (laughs) I was mm -hmm. like, I saw your list of talks you curated. I was like, I told you in the email, I need to be friends with this person because she's... It's mutual. She's got the same tastes as I do. I mean, so too, I have never read a sociology text while telling my children that they can't bother me right now. Like exactly the circumstances (laughs) that you imagined of people just in their daily lives unable to put down your book. That's... I ignored my children. (laughs) I don't think I can say that for any of my books. Nor should anyone. If anyone's reading my book, put it down. Uh, Just just get to your children. Well, I mean, the other thing, though, is that on the one hand, you often get the opinion from people, well, the academy has this kind of monastic ideal, and you think that what you're studying is ultimately too complicated to really be transmuted that easily into da-da-da-da. We're all becoming aware of how that's bullshit, right? Mm -hmm. There have always been people in the academy who feel perfectly fine 
going on TV and having a bunch of opinions, right? But they tended to come from very specific fields, right? Military historians, always on PBS talking about what Pershing should have done in mm -hmm. 1945 or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't follow that stuff, mm -hmm. but, you know, oh, or yeah. like talking about Jefferson Davis and whatever. I think that a lot of this anxiety about the ivory tower versus more popular writing is because different people are doing it now and why they're doing it. They're not coming out there to say, this great piece of art that you recognize, I will explain mm. to you why it's great. Mm -hmm. But like, hey, have you thought about how great pieces of art that there's a lot of racism encoded in that? And like, it's not as much fun, right? Like it's not, <laughs> it doesn't sort of uh, yeah. confirm to people what they already believe. But at the same time, the New York Times bestseller clearly bears out that people are ready for this, yeah. right? Like no one's hitting buy on Amazon being like, the new Jim Crow, the feel good hit of the summer, right? No. They're gonna, they're ready to be upset. Uh -huh. They're ready to be, challenge they're ready to feel bad about themselves yeah. i think that hopefully that'll lead to some rethinking within academia i hope so and i hope that academia could take advantage because there's so many smart people yeah. at every level like undergrad graduate students it doesn't have to have to be full professors that are speaking in those platforms because my gosh like some of the undergrads that i've met over the years are just wow like <laughs> First of all, they're much more telegenic than I am. And like, like a lot of professors, they know how to work a very small amount of time. Thank you, Vine or TikTok or whatever. And that's mm -hmm. something that is, I'm fascinated at what it could do if merged with academia. That's something that we try to do at Clayman. It's always been the ideal of knowledge production at every level. Mm -hmm. That in feminist knowledge production, lived experience counts so much as it does in your book. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, expertise and just paying attention to your life or to life in general are not as easily distinguishable. And therefore, we tend to hope that our students from their first or second year on all the way to our emeriti faculty can intersect kind of profitably with what's going on and that they often have a positionality and have a perspective. Few other people can replicate in exactly the same way. Totally. The majority of my students are women of color, mostly Latinx women, Asian American women, first in their family to go to college by and far. Mm. And like one thing I always try to drill into every class is that your ideas sometimes or actually often are more interesting than some academic conferences I've gone to. Mm -hmm. The things that you're able to see about the world that people in academia aren't, those are things that you need to really harness. I tell the story all the time about I had a student from the Central Valley of California, same thing, Latinx, first in her family go to college. And we were reading a book about like social inequality in high school. And you know, a lot of books talk about the racial dynamics in high school, but she was describing her high school and how the cliques in our high school were actually based on what food your farm worker parents picked. So it was like, wow, the kids whose parents picked grapes were like beefing with the kids whose parents picked lettuce. And there was a whole dynamic that emerged because everyone's parents was, you know, from mainly Mexico and, and they're working in the fields. And so I was like, can you imagine a dissertation that looked at a high school in which their agricultural sector shaped social cliques among the same ethnic group? That would be incredible. And that's just one example. But <laughs> when I hear my students talk about the random things that they don't think count as academic, that's where all the really cool stuff comes from. And I feel like I've been really lucky in that some of those students have gone on to want to do like graduate work. Yeah, I feel like some of them they don't even have to go get a PhD. They could be journalists and learn to write for places like BuzzFeed or places that have a large reach, The Cut, The Atlantic. I could imagine them doing that kind of work. They have the intellectual standpoint that will just mm -hmm. blow people's minds. It's just schools have never invested in them as, mm -hmm. as people to write for these platforms. Well, it sounds like at the core of the pedagogy you're giving them is the message that they are the experts on their own experience, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> I, I literally say you are an expert on this. Yeah. You know? And you've talked so beautifully of how that narrative has shaped you, right? You know, like how you had to learn not to be embarrassed by what you wanted to pursue and how to advocate for that and assert that that's important. And, yeah. you know, like this is getting a little cheesy, but since we were talking about creative nonfiction, you were reminding me of a passage by Richard Bausch that was given to me by one of my mentors in creative nonfiction, Alex Marzano Lesnovich. And Bausch writes, 
Writing, if you have any gift for it at all, is something you are morally obligated to do as part of the social contract. There are people out there suffering the wounds and sorrows and terrors of existence who do not have the words to weather it, and it is the writer's place to give expression to that part of experience, to provide a sense of what Joseph Conrad called the solidarity of the human family, and to give forth nothing less than the knowledge that no one in the world of stories and art is ever totally alone. Yeah. That just feels so related to me. Yeah. You know, there's so much truth to the idea that writing can make people feel less alone. Mm -hmm. I also think that it's bananas how you can write yourself a different future. Not to be Mm -hmm. totally cheesy, but Mm -hmm. you can write yourself and other people a different future if you just write a certain way. I've definitely learned that from like a favorite of all people is Kiesley Lehman, who I was lucky enough to take a summer class with. I was thinking about him as you were talking too. Yeah. God, let me put it this way. There was a point in which I was like, the only writing that counts is the one that's for publication, which is what academia trains you to do. Mm -hmm. Now I'm like every tweet, every email, every, every text I send, that is practicing sentences and practicing how much you resonate. Mm -hmm. So it's funny that you mentioned that quote about how narrative or stories can make you feel alone because the actual literal seed of my book was from, I was in my freshman year of college and I was on AOL or whatever we used back in the day, Netscape. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I came across a blog. Blog was big back then. And it was this blog written by a graduate student at UC Berkeley by the name of Elizabeth Pizarres. And she wrote something to the effect of, I don't know why Filipinos are considered Asian when literally based off what we think of as how you categorize people by race, like they could just as likely have been like Latino or whatever. And it was maybe like a throwaway line in a three-page essay at the end. But those two lines of that essay were what ended up being the words that galvanized me to think that what I was feeling mattered. Mm -hmm. And so that is just, I talk about it in my acknowledgements and lo and behold, small Filipino world, she ended up marrying her partner is a sociologist. But, uh, (laughs) and so we, we came to meet one day, but it was just like, wow. Like if those two lines from a blog, from a fellow Filipino scholar or writer could do that to me, Uh, I only imagine what it would be like to be able to like major in Filipino American studies. Mm -hmm. And that part makes me really sad Mm -hmm. because I know that while we have curriculum in like Chicano studies, African American studies, you have whole think tanks and centers. I can't even imagine the steps that would need to happen for the equivalent for Filipino American studies to happen. I don't even know. I mean, the good news is there's people that are trying to do this, like like UC Davis. Robin Rodriguez just launched the very first Filipino American Studies Research Center, which is cool. But back to your question about creative nonfiction. Yeah, I just want I just want people to have fodder and fuel to tell their stories and creative nonfiction. I've fallen in love with it because I don't know. I've just seen the the way it literally affects people. <laughs> yeah. Mm. You have been tweeting hot fire lately about <laughs> a PowerPoint that you're building oh, yeah. for your family, yeah, yeah, yeah. like sort of using your teaching skills to provide resources for Filipino families who want to talk more candidly about anti-blackness yeah. within POC communities and Filipino communities specifically. Can you talk about that methodology? And is your cousin involved? Do you have a you have a family ally in this? I have three other family allies, which is That's great. huge. That's amazing. So in my family, like, I think me and one other cousin are the only ones who went into like race studies like things, you know, he works in civil rights stuff and I work in what I do. But to be honest, the impetus to do the PowerPoint, it didn't come from me. And I think in part, it's because I've been studying this stuff since when, 1999 or something. And so I have a lot of history of like trying to inject convos about race and then getting shut down mm-hmm. <laughs> or getting, you know, mm-hmm. everything from like laughed at to dismissed. And so that's like trauma. Right. And I'm already queer in my family. So like coupled on top of the whole, like you're queer. Right. And you're like trying to bring up this stuff that doesn't go away. But my other cousin, who's an art director, she texts myself, my cousin that works at the civil rights organization, our other cousin who is a sociology major and super well-versed in this stuff. And she was like, yo, we need to do something for our family because they are starting to post shit on Facebook that is just like not cool. Like focusing on the looting as opposed to the black lives. 
So we called each other up within 48 hours. I dropped everything I'm doing. I made a first draft of a PowerPoint. I posted the first slide on Twitter just as like a, hey, I'm doing this first this Sunday. It like blew, blew up. up. Yeah. And and then we spent the next three days intermittently between going to protests and writing pieces for whatever and doing our actual jobs, <laughs> like doing this PowerPoint. And we were very nervous. I was like, I'm going to need an extra anti-anxiety pill for this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> self-care. Um, self-care. But on Sunday, we have a family Zoom call that's always set up at five o'clock. And we were like, we're going to do it. We're going to invite everyone to this conversation on race and anti-blackness. And shockingly, the family was receptive mm, to it. It's wonderful. Yeah. What's really cool is that I've gotten DMs and emails and And we've gotten invitations to like do this same workshop for other Filipino audiences, which I think is just like bananas. The part that really we were afraid of is that one of our cousins is a police officer. Mm. We were like, let's think of every possible rebuttal that could come up. But to his credit, he sat through the whole thing without interjecting. And his standpoint and point of view was voiced and... We made sure that we listened and heard without sort of veering away from our main objective, which is to shine a light on this fucking reality that is police brutality in mass. And it was really good, I think. And we got a lot of good feedback. And I mean, I don't know how you measure success for that, but I was going to ask about that. Yeah, I was curious if you had thought about that. Yeah, my mom and dad are posting about Black Lives Matter and they have a very different set of Facebook friends than I do. And they're like holding it down whenever people try to come at them. I think that's one example of success. Yeah. Their willingness to have the language and to post about it and not be like polite. <laughs> mm-hmm. I really do think that there were a lot of people that were in the middle of the spectrum where they know it's important, but just don't have the language to talk about it. Um, they don't know how it relates to them. So we tried to connect the dots and say, hey, the same logics that led to our arrival here, which is like the systematic destruction of hundreds of thousands of people in what you call your home country. That was the preconditions for why we're here. And that's something that overlaps with the experience of black people. Right. The police was modeled on the American occupation force of the Philippines, right? Modern professional U.S. police. That's a through line that people just aren't aware of, you know? And so, but with that said, also say like, you shouldn't just care because we had this in common. It's twofold as well. Like it just matters. You know, there's no qualifier. You know, I started getting other messages about like, oh, here, I'm doing it for my Khmer family and my Chinese American family. And if like even the idea of doing it ended up catalyzing other folks to take a stab, that seems pretty cool too. Again, what does success look like? I get scared. I don't want people to stop caring. And so I think that there has to be something built in where this just becomes as ritualistic as brushing your teeth. Well, and when we work those muscles and when we make them habits and behaviors, it also makes us better at spotting inequality in different ways, right? Like the better we work our muscles to fight anti-blackness, we're working our muscles to fight misogyny and anti-immigrant sentiment, you know, like all, all liberation struggles are intertwined, you know? It's true. And I'll tell you my biggest worry about it is that you know, part of the reason I went into sociology is because I was like, ooh, if you gather evidence, that can help convince people of inequality, which I learned is not true. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I'm queer and I remember what it was like to come out as queer to my family and how much for my parents, it was it's not like they were like hoping for that. Right. And I'm an only kid too. In the beginning stages of when I first told them about myself being queer, I assumed that sharing factoids or studies about queer people, I learned very quickly that stuff didn't necessarily move them as much as hearing stories about queer people, meeting queer people did. And so when we were going to this PowerPoint, we knew that there had to be a lot of it that was very story driven because we felt like stories did something more to inch people in the right direction than Mm -hmm. empirical facts, especially for you know, the Trumpies in the room. <laughs> well, and it's important to note for some context that the Filipino community in the U.S. really runs the whole political spectrum, right? Yeah. Like there are some very conservative members. Totally. Yeah. I think that there's something so fascinating in terms of 
being able to make people aware of narratives will always complicate very easy ones they've constructed in their own heads. I mean, that gets us back to the important work your book does just by existing, right? That you said that, you know, you gather evidence and then mm. you convince people. But I think you convince people just by the fact that you're even gathering evidence, right? Like the very fact that your kind of scholarship is worth doing, that people pick it up and read it and that people respond to it, that sort of tells other people like, hey, this is something worth taking seriously. And to just kind of wave that away is not good enough. It's disrespectful to your fellow citizens. It's disrespectful to other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that a book like yours accomplishes. Sometimes the very fact that you ask the question, you say, these are people whose answers are going to teach us a lot. And they will know better than we do, I think does just so much work. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people who know about the book, but they've never read it. And it's cool to see that even that in and of itself, like, has an effect on folks. One cool thing and one kind of shitty thing is that I met a lot of aspiring academics or Philippine American graduate students or master's students deciding what they want to do for research. Like, I'm always like super flattered, but also super bothered by the fact that, like, the only book that their professors can identify as mine. And I'm just like, there's so many amazing Filipino works out there. But I also say that like, when I write, my other rule of thumb is I try to treat my writing as like a first date. You read my book, consider it like a first date into Filipino American studies. And my hope is that you'll want to go on a, a second and third date with the topic. Mm. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We're eternally grateful for funding support from the institute named for a woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we're especially grateful to our feminist colleagues, Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, and Sarah Mersney. The Podfather is Arlenier Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following products, services, and entities. Blue Apron, Hymns, Casper Mattresses, and That Stupid Wine Club started by two MIT grads. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support, and we will find you. We'd appreciate it so much if instead you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there. Thank <laughs> you.